Hi, everybody. Welcome into another edition of the Lab Epstein Hitting Podcast, episode 130, Mechanical Breakdown Series, volume 39. We've done 38 previous mechanical breakdowns. Excited to do number 39 today as we break down the swing of Mariners star Julio Rodriguez. He had a great 2022, expecting to do big things in 2022. And 23 going forward, his sophomore season at the major league level. So it should be interesting with Julio Rodriguez, a Jackie Robinson Award winner. And we're going to talk about his swing, break it down, and discuss other points today. And the guy to do that with, I couldn't do it without him. He's my partner in crime, professional evaluator, successful business owner, former coach, friend, and co host, Jake Epstein. Yeah, the Mariners invested a lot of money in a rookie. So it'd be, uh, be pretty awesome if this guy. Hands out. I hope he makes some more money because, you know, I was trying to look at the numbers. I think it was a 14-year deal for around 200 and something million, 210, you know, that they locked him up really early, which is a great business move um, rather than him, you know, just kind of struggling on. But if they have him wrapped up until he – how old is he? Is he 21? 22 years old. 22. I mean, they have him wrapped up through, geez, until he's 35 or 36 years old. What a – wonderful um i don't know so it's a great business move for the mariners if he ends up being as good as everybody thinks he's gonna be well julio rodriguez rookie of the year silver slugger award winner last year up some of his numbers 145 hits 560 plate appearance we've talked about this on the show before that 100 at bat plateau it pertains to players of all levels professionally, college, high school. The context is different when it comes to collegiate and high school players. But looking at that 100 at-bat plateau, when it comes to professional players, it gives an organization a chance to look at a player, forecast their future long-term. Are they a guy like a Julio Rodriguez that you can invest in for 14 years? Or are they someone who might be a journeyman? What kind of hitter are they going to be in the future? That's what that 100 at-bats mark helps organizations determine. Looking at it, though, from... The broad scope to short term, the 100 at bats plateau also helps players and coaches understand, okay, what do we need to tinker with offensively when it comes to mechanics? What do we need to fix in our approach? Well, Julio Rodriguez in 560 plate appearances last year, 145 hits. He blew that out of the water. And the Mariners knew that. That's why they probably signed him. One of the reasons to that big long-term 14-year uh, deal. But 145 hits. Last year hit 284 in his rookie season. Epp, I understand the batting average isn't what it once was. It doesn't hold the weight that it did. But to slug 560, you're on base percentage at 345. 145 hits. You were in the home run derby last year, and you hit 28 home runs. I think we're looking at a guy with the possibility, if he continues on this track, of possibly hitting 35 to 40 home runs, and being a 300-plus hitter. In other words, I don't think that we have fully seen Julio Rodriguez hit his true ceiling yet as a hitter. Not, no chance. Um, but what you've seen in one year is is amazing. You know, yeah. it really is. If you, you look at people that put up huge, huge rookie years, you know, back in the day, I remember growing up, you know, the, the Dodgers had a lot of rookie, rookie of the years. You know, they had – like Eric Karros, they had Raul Mondesi, they had Todd Hollinsworth, um, Piazza. You know, any of those guys that were dominant rookies, you you would have given a, a deal like that. It probably would have paid off pretty good, um, at, at least for the for the for the midterm. So if you look at you know 14 years with Rodriguez, he plays great defense too. He probably plays better defense than than most 
of those rookie of the years, you know, that were just offensive guys. So now you have a guy that can run a little bit. He plays great defense. He he obviously finds barrels. You don't hit two, nobody hits 284 in the major leagues now. I know he's a rookie and they probably didn't have as, you know, a full scouting report of him yet and where his holes are, but you, he's still electric and he's still a clutch guy. He's a guy that lives for the moment. He's got a lot of energy. I, I, I think it's just a great move. And, you know, worst case scenario, the Mariners, if, if they if they don't end up being contenders, they can move that contract and get a ton of anything they want because it's a longer deal at a lower cost. What was the the average of that? Was was it 14 at 210? I mean, what are we looking at there? Like 16 million a year? So like that? okay. Looking at his contract status. So I don't know if it was 14 years. He signed though through 2029. So seven okay, seven years, 119 million. Oh. We may have been okay. thinking of somebody else. I don't think so. Seven years, 119 million. By the way, you mentioned his defense too. I want to bring that up for a second. Last year, center field, he was tremendous defensively. Yeah. To your point. And 984 fielding percentage. He had three assists in total. Yeah. So, I mean, he was just – and he played a little bit of right field too. But he was a tremendous defender, to your point as well. Yeah. But nevertheless, I mean, again, 14 years, seven years. Okay, he still so, signed yeah, a long-term deal. It's still about the same. You know, it's still 17, 100, right, 17 million a year, Yeah, you know, until he's 29. Yeah. That's dirt. His arbitration is going to be over that in a year or two if he puts up a similar – if he puts up a similar season as he put last year. So, um, I wonder if that is a, a a bonus that kicks in or something to to the full fourteen years, but um, or maybe I was looking at something else. But regardless, that's a that's a pretty pretty decent deal here until he's twenty nine. But at age twenty nine, now if he's a superstar, he can go out and sign another deal for twelve years until he's forty one, like everyone else, you know, and make another three hundred million, right? Because he'll be right. great when he's forty one. So Baseball Reference was telling me seven years. I don't know what that was all about. Um. So you were close. He signed a 12-year deal for 200 plus million. Okay, 12 years. 12 years. Okay. So he signed through 2035 and then after that he will be a free agent. Now some contract notes and this is according to spottrack.com. 7 years, 119 million base value, 209 base guarantee. So the total okay. maximum value is 470 million. He has a 2 2030 club option that must be decided on after 2028. Okay. So, so ultimately he has, the, he's locked in for seven years yeah, and then the so club option kicks in. And then that's when he might yeah. go the full length of that 12 year contract. Yeah. Well, 12 years at 40 million, that, that makes a little more sense if, if he ends up being a superstar, right. but it seems like the first seven years they got a bargain. I agree. And then they can part ways. Right. Sounds like. Smart move, smart move all the way around, right? I mean, you're a rookie. You're usually not going to get really paid for a couple of years. You get arbitration in a couple of years, but um, you know, for him, it's like, okay, great. Now I can just relax and hit the field. Yeah. Well, subscribe to the show, Apple, Google, Spotify. We're on Pandora. I listen to Pandora, by the way, at the gym. I listen to our show on Pandora at the gym. I know it's easy. Everybody's using All the kids are using Pandora now. Pandora and Spotify. We're on both platforms. Again, Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeart, Radio, uh, tune in radio stitcher we're on a bunch of other smaller platforms 
look, and you and the YouTube page, of course, the Lab Epstein Hitting Podcast YouTube. I'm not gonna sit here and and try and front, as the kids say, or maybe used to say. Our numbers on the audio side are excellent. We do a great amount of listeners every week, monthly, quarterly. We've got a good demographic that skews a little bit younger. It used to skew older, but now it skews younger. But on the YouTube side, we're struggling a little bit. We need to get those numbers up on YouTube. Watch the show. We've got video clips. You can watch us through the show every week. The Lab Epstein Hitting Podcast YouTube page. So subscribe. Hit that like button. Oh, by the way, you can leave a review for the podcast as well. All right. Um, J1 Catching on Twitter. Jerry Weinstein, we've had him yep. on the show before. We've interviewed yep. him. I'm going to ask you something here. This is something that's a little bit inverted, and this is coming from a pitcher and catcher approach, and I want to ask you, Ep, how a hitter approaches this. I think it's very re- relevant and pretty interesting. He writes, Jerry Weinstein, on Twitter, at Catching, and I think he tweeted this about a week ago. He wrote, according to Inside Edge Data, when you need a strikeout, there is value to getting a swing and miss early in the count. Again, when you need a strikeout, there is value to getting a swing and miss early in the count. The accepted belief has always been to save your swing and miss pitch for when you get two strikes. Okay, so let's put a hitter in that scenario. Uh-huh. The pitcher gets strike one via the swing and a miss. Now you're down on the count 0-1. The pitcher now has a hint about how to attack you because you swung and miss at that pitch, whether it's a fastball, breaking ball, whatever. Now, how does a hitter at that point? Because look, 0-2, I understand there's some fight that you have that goes into being down 0-1 as well. There's different approaches too, from being down 0-1 to being down 0-2. So after swinging and missing, you're down 0-1 in the count. How does a hitter approach that and get back into that count against the pitcher? Well, it could depend on how bad he looked on that swing and miss, or if he looked like he was just barely under it, you know, if he was right on it, meaning a fastball. But, you know, what a pitcher's saying is that guy, as a hitter, he saw that pitch come out of my hand and it looked good and he couldn't hit it. So sometimes if you save that pitch until the very end, the hitter has no reference and they'll just take it because it looks so different. They haven't seen it that at bat. Now, you throw it for a strike, you get a called strike three. But if you throw it for a ball, a lot of times you're not going to get the chase because they they don't have a reference of it. But if they have a reference of that that pitch that we swung and missed on, then there's a likelihood of that player swinging at that same pitch. You just got to make sure you get it out of the zone or you get it in the same spot, which is a lot harder than it seems. So as a hitter, you, you're figuring out how are they attacking you. A lot of times the first pitch off of a pitcher is how they're going to attack you that day. So if, if they spin a, a slider over, the first pitch, okay, they're going to want to get me out on breaking pitches. If they're throwing me a fastball away, maybe that's where they're trying to attack me. If they throw me a fastball um, up, uh, a lot of times they're not going to go up on the first pitch for a ball, but they might you know, ride a, a fastball at the belt, something like that. So it gives you an idea, even if you don't swing at it or swing and miss at it, it's telling you as a hitter how they're going to want to attack me. What is the first thing that is written on that report that the that the, the pitchers and catchers are using, obviously, if you're at the major league level or in, in college and high school, you know, what does that report say on the on the clipboard? And, and they're just going to keep going back to that, um, that same approach. So I would always see how they're pitching me when I would chart pitches, you know, at the college level when I was coaching, you know, I had a, a matrix that I used that that just showed me you know, what everybody threw to every hitter at what count. And by the second time through the batting order, then I we could narrow down with that player. Hey, this is kind of how he's going to attack you. You looked really bad on this pitch. They're going to keep going to that pitch. Or what did you do? You smoked an inside fastball. Everything they throw you now is going to be away. 
All right. So whether it's going to be an off-speed pitch away or a fastball away, let's take away the inner half of the plate and just focus on middle away to cover that. And uh, it sure makes hitting a little bit easier if you're a little bit smarter. Yeah. So a great tweet there from Jerry. Uh, by the way, we had we had a YouTube comment this week from DA on last week's show, and he has a bone to pick with with us, more particularly with you. Uh oh. He said, "Quote: Did you just say to marinate a New York strip steak?" If the baseball content wasn't so good, I'd unsubscribe. So you should watch the grilling tips. I did not say to marinate and absolutely not marinate a strip steak. You may have said said that. That You you said said it. I didn't say that. You said marinate something. I said we smoke it. We smoke it. Come on, DA, you know me better than that. Um, And he's right. I would unsubscribe too if somebody said that. Do you know DA personally? No, I don't know who it is. Well. He has, uh, that's his name, D.A. That's his, I guess those are his initials. (laughs) I forgot we did talk about the reverse sear method. We did. We did. You got to tell me how to do that again. We have to, you have to teach me how to do that. I don't know how to do a reverse sear. Season, smoke, sear. Boom. Done. But, but the rule. No marinate. Marinate the chicken. You can marinate the chicken. No, you need to marinate steak. You do. But you don't need to marinate New York Strip, which is you, what you, you said. You need to, mar- to do last marinate. Week. Yeah, you need to marinate cheap steak. <laughs> That's not no, 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 no. You marinate filet mignon. Mm, you might. And and you know what? I'm I and enjoy DA's steak pissed again. At least he's pissed at you and not well, me. Well, good. I hope he unsubscribes. <laughs> <laughs> this coming from a guy who was hoping that people would subscribe and talk about that in the beginning <laughs> right. of, the, of the show. Hey, Jimbo, no more talk about your steak marination so you marinate chicken you don't marinate steak you smoke steak correct now i might marinate a skirt steak in like you know some carne asada spices you know a a flat meat or a lot of people don't know what carne asada spices are that's because san diego has the best carne asada ever you know like a fajita meat you could use a fajita meat or something like that i use fajita meat though for breakfast which i don't marinate that meat i don't marinate a new york strip i didn't say to to do that last week so or a filet yeah you could marinate or a filet t-bone get away with it you could marinate a t-bone no although no you shouldn't because no you really shouldn't do a t-bone all right back to the back to rodriguez i'm just telling you though da you got watch what you say up. when it comes like to it. marinating meat you should watch what you say that's all chicken and if you and if people don't like that i or others there's a lot of people out there that marinate their steak in the meat I don't know what to tell you because it does actually give kick to the meat. It and does. you don't really tri-tip. know what you're talking Sometimes about. a nice Santa Maria tri-tip marinade is nice. Um, by the way, you mentioned the contract of Julio Rodriguez earlier. Jeff McNeil, we're going to break his swing down yeah. uh, this year in 2023 as well. He agreed. He avoided arbitration with the Mets. Filed for arbitration. Avoided that. Four years. Right around, I think, $60 million. But it just goes to show you, and you know this being a former professional player, now being in a major league front office, that if a team really wants you a lot of times, it should scare a fan base if their star player has to go to arbitration mm-hmm. with that that certain team with that certain player if they have to go to arbitration figure out a contract that should scare you because it makes you first of all going to arbitration damages your relationship with that team for future negotiations and trying to sign long term and it also means that they haven't at that point two three years in aren't fully committed to paying you what you think you're worth and that 
should give you a little bit of an indication about a player, whether or not they're going to stick around long term, but that's not going to be the case with the Mets. So a little arbitration. So it was a four a year. Bit. I thought it was a two year extension. It's four years, huh? Four, I think it was four years, but we were off yeah. today on contracts. So let me check here. But it just goes to show you, <laughs> I though, just glanced over it. It gives you a little bit of uh, um, insight as to what uh, I'm typing at the same time as I'm trying to talk here. It gives McNeil's you a little bit just of- a- a great piece for for that lineup. So you it have to have you, guys. Yeah. You have to have guys like that in in lineups that have high production players. You know, guys that hit hit doubles and home runs. You got to have guys that get base and limit the strikeouts. You know, that's what the Yankees were missing last year in the playoffs when Ben Attendee was hurt. I don't know if somebody else was hurt, but they just had too many guys that were if if they're not hot. You know, too many guys that are swing and miss prone, and then they all got cold at the same time and it hurt them. So you want to have guys in there with with high contact rates just to just so it's not a downer, you know, you go three up, three down every inning with two or three strikeouts an inning, you know, mentally that's really tough. The fans get pissed, but at least if you have guys putting balls in play, even if you're not scoring a lot of runs, at least you're getting guys on base, you have opportunity, you're getting the blood flowing a little bit. So that was a really good, good deal for them to, to keep, you know, to four keep years, four $50 million, years. by the way. Yeah. Bargain. But that tells you though, about arbitration, if you're a star player, any fan base, if your star player has to go to arbitration, <coughs> excuse me, that's an indication. Yeah, and I don't think that. he's their star player. He's a good player. Well, he's, he, but you can you put him on another team outside the Mets, who are now stacked. You put him on another team. He's considered more than just a mid level type player. I yeah. mean, come on, in four years, fifty million dollars. You're you're bordering on star status. Although Brandon Nemo is probably not a star, and he got a really big contract. So. He got a real big contract. Yeah. All right, email is jimbopodcast21 at gmail.com if you do indeed have any questions. This week on cross-functionality, Cassie Riley Bosha and I, we discussed dealing with failure, how athletes could deal with failure. Now, looking at it from the lens of hitting, how do hitters deal with failure? Is there such thing as too much failure, and how can hitters propel themselves, take that failure, and then turn it into success going forward? There can be too much failure. You know, and sometimes at the amateur ages, it's tough because you want to push your kid. You know, maybe you have a good, whatever, you got a good 12-year-old and you want them to play, instead of 12U, you want to play 14U. They go to 14U and they just get hammered all the time. Yes, they're getting great experience, but maybe it's just, it's tough. And you can only go like one for 10 in the tournament so long before you get upset. So there's a fine line between playing and having success even if it's artificial success, like, yeah, I'm better than the competition, but man, this is fun. I'm getting on base every time I'm rounding first. I'm going to second. Sometimes that plays a big part in keeping players active, keeping players in the game. But if you're out there and you're struggling just to compete, it's almost like you're, you're borderline drowning every at bat. Or if you're a pitcher, you know, you're getting shelled all the time. It's, it's, it's really tough. So being, you know, struggling or and having failures that's that's part of the game and that's why sports are great because it prepares you for life you know, you're not always going to to be number one at the office you're not going to be number one in your in your class your graduating class and you're not going to get an a on every test but how do we deal with that you know how do we get we got a d on a test you've been a, an a or b student you got a you got a d on your test what can we learn from that let's meet with our professor now we have communication skills we're, we're, we're talking to people in a position of authority. And then that person tells us, well, this is, you know, maybe you should change the way you were studying for this test. What did we have? What did we struggle with? So it forces you to dissect the situation, dissect the failure. 
why am I failing? You know, as, as, as a hitting coach, why am I, you know, why is my player uh, one for 30 right now? Okay, well, let's figure out the cause of that. Is it pitches? Are we swinging at bad pitches? Okay. Is it timing and rhythm? No, that looks good. Are hands getting loaded late? Okay, it looks like they are. You're kind of rushing your hands back a little bit more. Okay, now we have a solution to the problem. Let's work on that. And when a player has a solution, even if it's not the right solution, mm-hmm. it's a very mental game. This could be a made-up solution as a hitting coach. You know what? I think you should open your stance a little bit because you're not really seeing the ball with your back eye as much. What a load of crap that could be. But you know what? It gives a player another feel. Oh, that's probably why I'm not hitting. It's not because of my confidence. It's because I'm not seeing the ball with both eyes. Okay, I make that adjustment. All of a sudden, I find a few few barrels off the machine. I have a good BP. I go one for two in the game. Now I'm back and ready to go. So good hitting coaches have to be creative, but they have to be problem solvers. And as a as a player, you know, if you're a 14-year-old player, I don't expect this 14-year-old player to know why they're failing all the time. That's why they come to me. You know, that's why, Jake, I was hitting the ball so great at the beginning of the season. Boom, here's some video of the last weekend. I was really bad. Okay, I know what the problem is. Here it is. Work on this. Get it done. And then, boom, they'll have some success. So, it's sometimes it's really hard as a player, but, you know, I, I guess the best way to deal with failures is to figure out why you're failing because you're going to fail again. If you go one for 20, you're going to go one for 20 again sometime in your life. What was it? What caused it? You know, I gave the example of a player loading their hands too late. They usually load it when they pick up their foot and stride. Now, all of a sudden, they're loading it when their foot's coming down and they're late on everything. Okay, we've we fixed that problem. Now you've gone on and had some success. Maybe six months later, all of a sudden, we're having the same issue. And you're one for, say, seven. And you feel like you're late on everything. What are we going to go back to? Well, let's go back to the hands. That was what bothered us last time. That's what caused us to fail last time. Let's see if we can nip that in the bud early. And instead of going one for 20 or one for 30, we went one for 10, and then we fixed that problem. So we're learning from the mistakes because similar mistakes will always haunt the same player. They're not going to just randomly come up with a new mechanical issue or a new load issue, right? It's in their DNA. And what we have to do is be able to snuff that problem early before it gets out of control. And that's too, when it comes to a baseball player and, and talking about this in a baseball context, that's why coaches and front offices, when it comes to the professional level, they should at least give a player 100 at bats, give him that ramp up to then determine, okay, is this guy really talented? Is this guy a good, I shouldn't say talented, a good fit for what we're trying to do here? How do we tinker him or... Have we lost enough confidence? Have we seen enough in 100 at-bats? But if you give a guy 30 at-bats, you mentioned it before, why is he one for his last 30? You give a guy even 50 at-bats, you still don't really know, okay, what do we have here? I mean, you don't really know concrete where with 100 at-bats, you get a better indication. But again, there's that rampway to where, and you don't want to go over 100, but you know, 10, 20 at-bats, you're still talented. You shouldn't lose confidence, but you're failing. Now let's learn from that failure. Yeah, it's 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 hard, you know, especially in college, you only have 56 games on the books, so you you really can't give somebody 100 at bats to fail. Well, I'm summer ball too. And yeah, that's when the player has to assess their own talent. It, well. It's hard. Yeah, I mean, it's really you'd like to you you give this player a, you know a big scholarship. Maybe they had a great fall. 
they did really well. And then all of a sudden the season starts and it's like, oh man, like we got to get this player going. How are we going to get them going in there? Then you have to evaluate what's their mindset like, you know, are they having good at bats or are they just, have they given up? Um, you know, in the major leagues, you know, hundred at bats, that's only, you know, maybe, you know, out of it's, it's uh what 10, no, no. Uh, my math is leaving me right now. 25% of the at bats you're going to get, right? No, less than that. So maybe 20% of the at bats you're going to get one out of five. Yeah. One out of 100 out of 500. So you can afford to give somebody that much, but if you give somebody 50 at bats at the college level or 60 at bats at the college level, you know, that's almost half a season sometimes. So right. you have to be careful with it, but let them go. Yeah. I mean, the worst thing to do is you give somebody a weekend start and they fail and then you don't play them again for a while. And that's, that's the hard part, you know, with, with players, you know, what are we trying to do without communicating to the player? Um, and that happened to me once. I remember uh, my sophomore year of college, I, had I led the the fall in, in hitting, I think. I had a great fall in hitting. And then we started the season, and I didn't start the first game. And I was pretty bummed out about it. And then the second game, I started, and I think I, I hit my first home run. I think I was uh, two for three or two for four. And then the, sec then the third game of the series, I didn't start that game. And, um, and then I pinch hit and hit a double. Like So I think I was three for four or three for five on the series with a home run and a couple doubles and we play two midweek games and I didn't get a start in either of them. So I'm trying to figure out what the heck is going on. So I had, I had to, you know, speak to the coach and figure out because I was down. I'm like, what is going like, what do I need to do to play? And um, I don't remember what it was. I, well, I do remember what it was, but. Do you want to share or no? Yeah, no. I mean, they, what they essentially said was uh, you can't hit the way you're hitting. Um, we don't think you're going to be successful hitting that way. And, um, I was doing like a no stride at the time. And so I said, well, I'm whatever, you know, I got four extra base hits or three extra base hits and four or five at bats. What, what do you, well, you could probably do that. And I'm like, well, look what I did in the fall. Yeah. But once you face uh, Texas, you know, you, you won't be able to get away with that. So I said, okay, well, what you tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. So they said, well, come meet with the hitting coach, um, before practice okay, you know, a half hour before, probably an hour before. And I had to do some, I'm, granted, this is 2000. This is the late 90s. You know, this is 98. I think I had a huge year that year too. This was 98. And so they, you know, hitting was different. Hitting was, uh, you kind of want more of a weight shift onto your front leg. So he had- More linear, do, right? Yeah, more, more linear. linear. So he had me do these drills. And this was a guy who was a former minor leaguer, was our hitting coach. And second baseman, you know, kind of a little guy and a great dude, but that's what he thought. And so he would throw the ball probably a foot or two in front of my front foot with side toss. And I would have to lunge and hit a ground ball up the middle. Okay. So that, that was what I did. So I did it. I mean, I could do anything. You could whatever, hit a high pitch, low pitch, whatever. I played wiffle ball as a kid. Right. So I did it for whatever, 20 minutes. And then I went and took BP on the field and whatever that looked good. And then the next day I did the same thing and um, had BP, whatever, on the field. Nothing had changed, right? You're not going to change a swing in, in 50 swings. And then they put me in the lineup, and I got a couple hits. I think I was two for four, and then I played the rest of the year. And I never had to do that drill again. So sometimes you just have to show coaches that you're willing to 
to do what they want you to do. You know, what is it you want me to do? And I'll do it. I want to play. It doesn't do me any good to sit on the bench and be frustrated. You want me to hit on one leg? I'll hit on one leg. Mm-hmm. But I need that competition to hit in the lineup. And and maybe it helped. Maybe I maybe it did do something. Maybe it flattened out my swing. I may have been too steep or 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 whatever it was, but it helped. And then, you know, after have, being hot for two weeks, there was an article in the paper about how great the hitting coach was changing me for those those two days, you know, that we spent together doing that crazy drill. And like I said, maybe it did work, but don't don't get frustrated, you know, if, if somebody gives up on you. Have Try to have communications. And yes, there are some coaches that don't, you have to make an appointment to go into their office, you know, at the college level or even the high school level. But try to try not to wear your coach out by meeting with them, you know, twice a week. But if it is something that's, you know, f- see what's on their side. What are they thinking? You know, maybe there's something there that you can improve upon um, as a teammate or, or, or as an athlete and, and and they can help you with that. But I'll tell you what it's like, you know, if you have a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a marriage that's that's not working out, it's because no one's communicating and no one's talking. And so you open those lines of communication between yourself and the coach and now you know where everybody stands. And you might not like the outcome, but at least you're not guessing why you're not in the lineup. Maybe there's a reason. And then you go work your butt off, and you know what? That coach is going to see that you're working your butt off, and boom, he's going to give you some opportunities. But what I don't understand, this guy, your hitting coach, you don't have to name him, he played professionally, and he's trying to get you to hit ground balls back up the middle mm-hmm. and trying to get you to have this huge weight shift. How does he not see that you're a bigger guy, that your power ceiling is higher than that of a guy, quite frankly, frankly, that would play his position. And as a hitting coach, he tried to make you into somebody that's more of a slap-type linear hitter rather than someone who could generate power, get leverage, and get the ball up in the air. I don't understand that. Yeah, no, I don't know either. I, I think it was what he was comfortable with. That's that's right. what he was probably probably taught maybe in the minor leagues. And, and, and maybe he thought by doing that drill, it was – I mean, I do some crazy drills with – well, not that crazy, but I do some drills with – if I have a player that's swinging up too much – I tell him to swing down. I'll put the blast on him. Holy cow, you were swinging up 22 degrees here. I need you to swing up at 10. I want you to chop this one. And then they'll like try to chop it, and they'll swing up at like 15 degrees. And I'll be like, did that feel down? Yes. Well, you were still up 15 degrees. Let's see if we can go down more. So maybe it was something to that effect. Um, yeah, I guess. I, I, but yeah. it's just it was a move that you know people are always like, hey, man, you got to stay back. I, mean, I don't care where you are, whether you're a – a linear person or not that was that was and linear nowadays is different than linear what like hereniac was finished on your front leg but most people were like stay back but yet they wanted you to do this drill where all your weight came forward so you know different strokes for different folks but hey who knows maybe it changed my career i don't know maybe those 20 30 swings did justice and helped me out somewhere but um regardless if i didn't have that conversation i i might not be here today i may have quit baseball that year and just yeah. said, this is stupid. I'm not going to sit here and work all fall and be successful and then never play again. You say so you wouldn't, you so then you probably wouldn't be here doing this podcast. No, right? with you, Jim, and talking about not marinating strip steaks. 129 episodes in, now 129 and a half. Mechanical Breakdown Series, Volume oh, yeah, 39, Julio Rodriguez. We've done 38 of these, so go back and check those out in the archives and follow us on social media at Jim Tara and at Epstein Hitting on both Twitter and Instagram. Let's get into Julio Rodriguez, shall we? It's Mechanical Breakdown. Uh, we'll get into his swing attributes. I have a couple of notes that I made in regards to his swing, a lot of things that I like, but a couple of things that I like that, that go with my four pillars of hitting 
And we'll talk about that in a second. But why don't we do the mechanical breakdown first of Julio Rodriguez. And again, to watch this, um, visit our YouTube page, the Lab Epstein Hitting Podcast YouTube page. All right. I, I've got it pulled up on my end. So let's do this. All right. Let's rock and roll. So I think the first part before I hit record here, you know, we were talking before the show and I hadn't studied his swing much. And, and you said you were looking at it earlier and we both came up with the same comp, right? Who was that? Comp? Don't say it. Wait, wait, wait. Don't say it yet. We'll say it at the end. Oh, we'll say it at the end. Okay. All right, rock and roll. So let's go through here. We have a front view of uh, Rodriguez here, and and we can kind of see his stride and and how he loads. And you can barely see the pitcher on the left side of this screen, but see how his arm, you can see the pitchers. I'm going to, I'll put a little arrow over there. So we're talking about timing here. He's got his arm out, right? Which means his, his, his throwing hand is down and back. And as his front arm goes down, right? His back arm is probably coming up. And that's exactly when rodriguez is, is lifting his foot so if we look at you know those two arrows the arm the pitcher's arm pulls down and that's like pulling his foot up and then by the time the ball is released right about there he's about it at the top of his swing now you can see he's got a pretty good um you know barrel tip out this way okay he gets his back elbow up really high that's fine okay but the key is how does he get to the launch position you know there's toe touch and then we get to heel plan. And this is what I really like. And, and this is hard to get some players into this position. It's actually very hard to get players into this position. But it's almost a straight line across his back and shoulders, right? And see how his elbow, his back elbow connects to that line? There's so many players. I had a player um, last night that I was working with from a local high school. And most of the guys from that high school, they don't work with me. They work with um, – Another guy in town that's more of the, you know, slot that back elbow really early and then turn really fast. Okay, so that's kind of their problem. And so they talked about, you know, you don't want your back elbow in that position when pretty much everybody we've looked at here at heel plant has their elbow in that position. So be, you know, be very cautious. Yes, it's going to come down and we'll talk about that and we'll see that in a second. Um, But just that's a really good line from the front. That's one of the things that I look for is. Um, when that front foot lands, our hands still back behind our head and about ear height, and is our is our front shoulder closed? We can see his entire number here, forty four, and we can also see both of his eyes. So he has good flexibility in his neck, which allows him to close off this much. If we look at his his heel line here, I would say it's pretty. I can't see the batter's box line, but there's his. His heel line, is that about parallel to that? Yeah, so he's square. That's very good. He's he's not closed. He's definitely not open. And then if we go a little bit further, I'm going to draw a line for his posture. That's one, one thing that is very popular today, keeping your posture after heel plant. And we'll see if he keeps it. So there's his spine angle. And uh, he keeps it pretty good, right? Like that's still his spine angle as he rotates around it. Um, I would say even though his spine is very good there, Let's see what his head does. Does his head come up a little bit? A lot of times when the head lifts, it could be just the head, but usually if it lifts up and out, then the spine isn't as good. You can see his kind of comes in just a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, he's got a lot of head movement on this um, through the swing. So you'd like to keep that a little bit more stable, but it's not bad at all. The other great thing to see on this angle is, is why he's successful and why he's going to be successful, and we talk about this a lot. His vertical bat angle, this pitch is down. Let's see if I can get an angle on it, though. 
Yeah, this pitch is down. He's only at 29 degrees. Where it's at the thighs. He's only at 29 degrees. But look at where he is after. Look how his barrel stays on that. It's still on that line. Here it is over here at 28 degrees. Okay. So this is really, really cool as he rotates around here. As he has good coordination. Even though he's extending, there's no wrist manipulation. He's keeping his vertical bat angle consistent. Why is that important? Well, if you get to contact it, whatever we said that was, 29 degrees or so. Okay. I don't think I drew that line properly. Okay. Oh, that was after. Go back one more. Here we go. So 29 there, and maybe he flipped it a little bit, and it ended up being 26 or so. But if you have a big manipulation there, that either leads to weak fly balls to right if you drop your vertical angle. So if your vertical angle went from 29 to like 39 or 40, okay, then you'll slice the inside of the ball. Or if he flipped it up and it went less and it went to 20 degrees instead of 29 degrees, then you'll tend to, to roll over. So that's why, you know, all the drills we have where we're – Focusing on hand path from launch to contact are so crucially important. Okay, we can see. Look at me. I'm excited. This may have been a playoff game. I think it was. This was a very yeah. low line drive, by the way. This was a 17 degree home run, which is pretty insane. Um, probably had a little top spin at 17 degrees, would be my guess. So let's go ahead and go to the side view. And you'll see he's got a pretty big move, right? I mean, as he strides. Okay, we'll let you guys figure out who we think he looks like when he strides. But here's his eye level. He's got a, a pretty good leg kick. And then you're going to see his eye level drop a decent amount, right? And like we've talked about before, most players do that. What you don't want to do is go the opposite way, which is very common now. Players overload into their back hip. They overload into their back leg. Then when they go to step, their head goes up. And, and that's one of the things I see. One of the cool parts about my job is seeing trends because um, I've been doing this and video analysis I've been using since probably 2003 is I've seen how swings change and what's taught and what's hot on the Internet. And, and all of a sudden it shows up in the players. And why do players typically send me videos? You know, they usually don't send me the videos because they're like the greatest 14 year old in their town. They're trying to get better. They're struggling somewhere, and so they're looking for help. And so a lot of times I see all these trends on whatever, Instagram or Twitter. I'll see them show up in all these players, all these different moves, and unfortunately it's it's leading to a lot of problems. So that's one of them, players that are trying to load too much into their backside artificially, then all of a sudden their heads lift like six inches when they go to stride. So be cautious of that, you people or coaches out there that are listening. Um, as we get him a little bit further, you can see he gets super wide. So the distance between his arches are definitely that 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 base is wider than his inseam. Okay, so of ten players that I see on a regular basis, if there were ten new players I'd see in person, zero of them would have a base wider than the sides. Okay. Everybody I kind of see is is more narrow and spinny now. They're really focused on, um, you know, turning fast and and, and kind of turning the shoulders to turn the hands. And um, sometimes that's good, like on an inside pitch. That's that's kind of the thought process. But it's not – I'm not seeing a lot of um, leg drive, which is what we see here. Look at him sink into his back knee here. Mm, I love so that. It, that's pretty good, right? Like mm. if you take him to the spot where his heel plants – and then watch his back knee come in. And as soon as his back knee comes in, his back hip comes with it. 
Okay. And it free wheels through. Now, if we look at him, he has a little bit of a drift. Okay. So I'm going to put this line right in front of his nose at heel plant. And he's got a drift because he's really wide and you have to stabilize a little bit. So he goes forward, maybe an inch or two. You do see that head kind of come up a little as he comes through. But then everything is, let's see his back foot. Yeah, his back foot's got to move a decent amount because he's so wide. Okay, but see how low his back foot is? That's what I, this has been a hard thing for me lately as well with whatever players are, are being taught or doing is this foot isn't, see how his foot's moving forward, but his heel is in front of his toes. So many players I'm seeing where the heel is back and the toes are for, they're just pulling their toes forward. So instead of the foot, this is somewhat hard to draw, but his foot's on an angle like this, heel to toe. I'm seeing the t the heel there, but the toe in there. Okay, and so it looks funny. And when the heel flexes forward, that's what pushes the knee in. So they're moving their foot, but they're not getting the benefit. They're not doing it for the right reason. Um, and so one of the things I'm trying to tell players to do a lot is, you know, keep these toes in the ground as long as you can. Yes, your foot can move forward. That's great because this hip's got to come through. And the, the hip is coming through. The knee's coming through. Right, we all know that I'm a big proponent of the knee. If the knee moves forward, the back foot's going to move forward. That's just the way it is. But we don't want this foot to to do it by itself. A lot of people are trying to move the foot to to like move the knee and hip, and then it's artificial. I want that knee to come down and in, and then start working towards our front knee, and that action pulls the back heel forward, but it keeps the toes in the ground. So, um, you know, be cautious of that, you players out there. Keep those toes in the ground. Um, he firms up his front side really great. His back leg, I mean, he's got a he's got a great swing, right? And obviously, this was a home run. If we look at his back shin, see how low it is in his power V position, in his extension position. Again, this was a ball he pulled. He hit out in front. Um, so his power V is going to be more to the left. And again, this is his power V with his arms. Creates a V there, and his bat's shooting right out it. If it's an outside pitch, that's just going to going to face more towards the center of the field, maybe right center field. Um, and then if we look at his swing plane, um, you know, as he rotates here, you know, his back elbow is coming down, his back shoulder is coming down, but he started to rotate. There's still space in here. Okay. So if there's not space in here, if this elbow comes down too soon, then what does the bat do? Then the bat goes back here. Look how close the bat is to his head. That creates a short path. Okay. Then it comes here. Now, all of a sudden that bat's still pretty close to his ear, close to his shoulder. Knob and elbow are in line here. That's very, very important. Make sure the knob's not in there, right? That's bat drag. Okay, so he's not leaving his hands behind, which is um, what I see with a lot of young players. He's getting his hands, you know, out in front of his armpit. That's what we're trying to do. Got to get the hands in front of that back armpit. And then his barrel plane, uh, you know, this frame rate's not the best. So I, I have no idea connecting the dots here, but I'm going to say he's probably on a, a swing plane like so. Okay, he probably drops in. See if I can freewheel this thing. Yeah, he's probably kind of dropping in here, like this. And then he's probably maybe coming up and out of it. And he's probably a little bit flatter than that. So he definitely has um, a good swing plane. He's got a great combo swing plane, meaning he drops underneath a little, maybe a half a ball, right? Maybe a quarter of a ball. So by only dropping underneath that much, that means he's he's not going to miss as many balls, right? His his misses will be fouls, but he also it also gets him to the bottom of the ball, and then he swings up a little bit more. So that combination gives you a little bit more of a a launch angle on balls you hit out in front versus rolling over balls out in front. So 
this is a, a good combination for him. It kind of makes sense, you know, that he's 30 home runs and 280, right? That That's a pretty good combo. If he starts to drop his barrel a little bit more, say kind of down and back into here, and then he's got to come back up to the ball more, then what you're going to see is, you know, maybe you're going to see 30-plus uh, home runs, okay? But you're going to see maybe like a 255 average, something like that. Okay, so everyone does what they do, and you can slightly tweak those kinds of things. Um, but with him at age 22, you would just let the horse run, man. This, <laughs> this this guy is a physical, physical guy. So anyway, that's kind of a cool breakdown of a swing. And again, 117 miles an hour at 17 degrees. That ball's pretty much squared up. Uh, you know, he didn't cut. He didn't bottom half that and backspin it in the left field. If he did, just to give you an idea of how things work, you know, say he he uh, was a little bit more level through the zone. He didn't come back up and hit it. He maybe he kind of cut through the the bottom half of it, kind of pool holst that ball. Then you would see this exit velocity go to like 105. Okay, but his launch angle would have increased to like you know 30 degrees or 28 degrees, something like that. Okay, so that's kind of how it works when you hit different parts of the ball, right? You don't, the hardest balls you ever hit are typically low line drives because you're, the pitch is only coming in at, say, four or five degrees. So if you hit a ball at, say, five to 10 degrees off the ground, you're hitting most of the ball. If you're hitting a ball, if a ball is coming down at, you know, only five or six degrees, actually, I think this was a breaking ball, if I'm not mistaken. Was this a breaking ball? Let's go back to the front. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was a breaking ball. So this ball was dropping a little bit more. So guys that typically swing up more, that have more of an uppercut, maybe an average attack angle in the uh, 15 range, those guys are going to hit breaking balls better. Why? Because when breaking balls enter the zone, um, they enter the zone a little bit steeper. Let's see if we can kind of see this. I don't know with the frame rate if we will. Could have been why he was slightly out in front too, because this pitch was a little slower. So he made his... Um, yeah, I don't really see the frame. I don't think he's hit it there yet. I can try to connect the dots. Well, let's here's, so here's the ball, here's the glove. Yeah, so you can see this was this pitch was more in that eight degree trajectory coming down, where if it was a 90 mile an hour fastball, it'd probably be at like five degrees. So, all right, great breakdown this week. Mechanical breakdown series volume 39 of Julio Rodriguez. And again, this probably is better to be enjoyed on the YouTube side. Watch the show and to watch the breakdown, uh, the lab Epstein hitting podcast, YouTube page, but with Julio Rodriguez, a couple of things that I noticed in my prep for today's show. And you see this, you can really tell, and I think evaluators would agree with me on this. You can really tell a guy who can hit based off certain mechanics and certain ways their body moves and how they get to the baseball. And there's a couple of things that I noticed, and we're going to get to his comp here in just a second, because we teased it prior to the breakdown. His load to me is perfect in every way possible from the feet to the hands, to the head, to the front shoulder being slightly slanted, getting that torque angle that he needs to, he has a perfect load and his timing and rhythm is pretty much, I mean, it's pretty much on point with that load. Again, mm -hmm. one of my four pillars of hitting that makes it, I think what makes great hitters successful and great hitters, what they are. Now my comp for him and you and I both agree on this. We talked about it before the show is Mookie Betts. And it may be something that's a little bit out of the ordinary, although they do play very similar positions. Mm -hmm. Julio Rodriguez is taller than Mookie Betts, but from the way that Julio is able to generate leverage with the lower body, using his legs, his little bit steeper of a swing plane, 
and his follow through very similar to Mookie Betts. They, they, yeah, I mean, they move, they, they move almost identically in the, in the middle of the stride uh, to launch. And that, you know what those moves are? Those are natural moves. I mean, this is a Latin born player. I don't know. Where's Rodriguez from? Do we know? Dominican Republic. Okay. So he's not from uh, Tennessee, I think is where Betts grew up or played high school ball or whatever. Um, Yeah. I mean, these guys, it's not like they work out together, but they sure move the same way. Um, and you know what players don't do now? They don't move that way. This is this is looks like a guy that was trying to launch balls as hard as he could when he was 12 years old and 13 years old. Well, how do you do that? You got to have a big old leg action, right? You got to have a pretty good weight shift. You got to have a pretty good stride. But he learned to master it at a very young age. You know, I mean, this is a pretty big move. And most people would see that move and be like, oh, well, he's going to be susceptible to this, that and the other. Well, Maybe not. Maybe he's done the move for so long that he knows how to control it. Just like you said, he controls his timing. He starts really early, right? We talked about that. We saw that. And he doesn't rush it. It's it's not a super fast move. It's not a herky-jerky move. So he can do it. And we can't put limits on players based on what we see. We have to let them do what they do. Meaning, if he showed up at a college program, a Division One program, mm-hmm. with that load... And that bat tip, I would say 80% of those schools would try to change that. Why? That's what I wonder, though. Yeah. Like, so they would say, this is, well, this about. is, you're not going to be able to get away with that in the SEC. You're yeah, not going to be able I, to get away with that disagree. at the Division One level. You're not going to get away with that at whatever level. You know, they, this isn't high school. Yeah. I, I completely right? disagree. I completely disagree. Well, with and, that. and that's the difference between, you know, kind of what we see. So, you know, you where he was able to just do this his whole life growing up outside not having to worry about high school baseball right just kind of playing with it you know doing his uh you know the club that he was involved with likely in the in the dr his trainers that he was working with they just went out and played and practiced and hit and threw and ran and took ground balls and did footwork drills where it wasn't like oh you got to make sure you can hit 94 well you know what a lot of people at age 18 can't hit that yet Okay, so well, you know yeah, and that's what but, they say when you get to college as well. Well, you're going to face on Friday. You're going to face uh, Arkansas's number one, and he throws 98. Okay, well, let me fail off that player first before we uh, change everything that got me here. And yeah, so, I'm, I'm not saying, saying my every, only thing. Every program does this by I, any. I means. understand it, but yeah, my but, only thing with trying to change if you were to if you were to go to a Division One program and they were try to change that. I understand how much the hitch or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. um, would you say bat tip? I yeah. understand how that affects yeah. a guy's timing, but if that's something he's been doing all of his life and he's been successful at doing that all of his life, then we have to go, we have to find something else. If something's not working, we can't just look right at the bat tip. Why don't we look at one of my four pillars of hitting yeah. timing, rhythm? Why don't we look at his legs, his leverage, his load? We can't just look at his bat tip. And I'm not disagreeing with you, but I disagree at the sediment that SEC coaches or any big time college coach would want to change that to me you're you're asking for more trouble and you're creating more problems rather than looking deeper and more of an introspect at the problem that's actually there occurring not with the bat tip i don't i don't understand that yeah and and maybe it doesn't but i mean if this was a top five player in the country and you know sign but if he was just a regular a regular dude that you gave 50 percent scholarship to that um you know maybe was on a little bit of the perfect game circuit but mm-hmm. wasn't you know a, a perfect 10 or or you know, he, he wasn't a, a, a first round draft pick. 
the, you know, everybody wants to get their hands on people. And sometimes yeah, you have to it, like, but that's not play. coaching. Yeah, that's not coaching. But I will. And that's why you have to wait until, hey, is there a problem? And let's see if we can iron out that problem slowly. And he's, again, this move just looks like he's on every swing, even in a game. He doesn't. He's trying to hit a ball 117 miles an hour, like yeah. unless he has two strikes. He is getting his body in position to do that. And a lot of players that I work with, I had one player, a high school player who's um, not big at all, right? High school, and he's a senior, and he's a dang good shortstop. Um, but he was hitting the ball, I think we talked about it, 84 miles an hour when I first got to him. You know, this was just a few months ago. And 84, 85, and it's like, no, okay, like he's a good high school player. I'm like, I know there's more there. So I put him through kind of what I do. You know, it's the same kind of drills I have in the online academy for those of you that, you know, are, are part of that. And we essentially tried to build in some action that Rodriguez has here. Okay. Like, you know, similar, but I wanted to see how he would do it. I didn't teach him a hitch. I just said, I want you to start here and I want you to end here. And so yesterday we did a session and he hit balls 94 miles an hour. He's probably 160 pounds. Mm-hmm. He didn't hit every ball 94 miles an hour, but that's where he topped out at 94. So 10 miles an hour in like a month and a half. He didn't put on any weight. He just moves differently. You know, I let his athleticism play that had been taken out somewhere in his life. I don't know if it was when he got to high school, before he got to high school or whatever. But we put that athleticism back and all of a sudden now he's hitting balls um, 90 plus most of the time. And that is huge because he was at 80 plus. We raised everything about 10 miles an hour. So let players, you know, work with this. Let players have fun with this. Now, if they fail and they strike out every time and they they can't stay back, you know, with this move, you know, after after the front heel lands, they just keep lunging for it. Okay, then, you know, we can't let that happen. But if you have players that have some ability, let their athleticism play through because mm-hmm. some players are, are made to play this game and some players are made to dominate this game. And we don't want to get in the way of those players. Okay, that's the last thing we want to do. I think that's the best way to end today's show. So again, watch the show on YouTube. Thanks for listening on the audio side. We really appreciate that. Mechanical Breakdown Series, Volume 39, Julio Rodriguez. And if you have any questions, email us, jimbopodcast21 at gmail.com. Next week, we will be discussing developing intangibles as a baseball player, developing intangibles as a hitter, Episode 131. That'll be next week's show. What do you got coming up at the lab? We have we're uh, we have a lot of high schools in now, so high school players going nuts there. We're prepping them for the season, which is right around the corner. So it's cool. We get a lot of College Station high school. The team will come in and use the facility and prep and crank up the machines and get ready, and then our normal guys. So we're just we're kind of cranking everything up velocity wise and spin wise to stress them out a little bit to get them ready for first pitch. Perfect. All right, thelabbcs.com. And again, if you have any questions for us, email us immediately. Jimbo Podcast 21 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, watching everybody. Be sure to subscribe and we'll talk to you next week.